Well, good morning. So normally, uh, Jim Hayes, our lead pastor, he would be up here now to, to preach, but he is out of town, and so you get the second string, or the third string, thank you. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> Just kidding. So we, have, we are still in the book of Romans. We are currently going through the book of Romans, if you didn't already know that. We started right at the beginning of Romans way back when, and we're, we're at chapter 8 now. I have given this uh, sermon the very clever title of Romans 8, 6 through 13, because it's what I could come up with. <clears throat> so Romans is an awesome book, it's, uh, and where we are right now, Romans 8, is, is, uh, is incredible. We'll, we'll get into it. But just to, just to recap um, where we've been, the first seven chapters of Romans explain the wonderful truths of the gospel. Justification by faith, our union with Christ, salvation through Christ alone and not through our works. That's, that's chapters 1 through 7. In a nutshell, they're all online. There's much more to be said about them. They're available for, to, for you online. But then comes the second half of the book, where we are now. In chapters 8 to 16, Paul is going, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the church in Rome, he's going to continue to answer a question that he began to ask in chapters 5 to 7. And it's this, how does faith in the gospel of Christ actually lead to change in real life? So we're going to get really practical in the, in the days and months ahead. We learned two weeks ago in chapter 7, right at the end of chapter 7, that it's not possible to perfectly keep God's law. So if you're trying to keep God's law and trusting in that, sorry, it's not possible. God's law shows us what sin is and exposes us as sinners because we can't keep the law. We, we may want to keep the law, may, we may try to keep the law, we may hate sin and love righteousness, but we inevitably end up doing what we hate and not doing what we know to be right. Can anybody identify with that? So Paul describes it as a war between our inner being, which delights in God's law, and our sinful nature. And Paul, at the end of chapter 7, he ends up crying out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers his own question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then we learned last week that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that might just be my favorite verse in the entire Bible. If I was going to get a Bible verse tattooed across my back or arm or forehead, don't get a forehead tattoo. That's a bad idea. If, it would be this one. There's no condemnation. And I encourage you, if you didn't hear last week, go back and listen to last week's sermon about this. Because it's so important, it's so awesome, and it's so hard to believe. And what it tells us is that we aren't condemned for our past. And many of us, if we're believers, we, we get that. It's like, okay, there was my past before I decided to follow Jesus, and I'm not condemned for that because Jesus covered that. We get that. 
sometimes. But we aren't condemned presently either. And by the way, we will never be condemned in the future. And by the way, yeah, that's good news, huh? And that's, uh, <laughs> he's not done sinning. That's right. That's right. And so we sin inevitably, and then we're like, whoops, I'm, I'm under condemnation. No, what, what it says is we are not under condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period, end of sentence. Not ever, no matter what. It's so difficult to actually believe that God isn't mad at you. He doesn't hold anything against you. He finds nothing to punish you for. Now, I'll just say that this is for those of us who are Christians, and what that means is we have turned from our sin, we have placed our faith in Jesus, we have accepted his free gift of forgiveness. If you have not done that, you need to start there because you are under condemnation otherwise. But Jesus has come and taken our condemnation for us, and he offers that to us as a free gift. So we've been set free because of Jesus. That's why it's called good news. The word gospel means good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of Jesus Christ. And we need to constantly remind ourselves of that great good news. And here it is. God sent Jesus as a man to die on the cross as a sin offering in our place. He paid the penalty for sin because only he could do it. We had the sin, but not the ability to pay. He had the ability to pay, but no sin. It's a pretty good deal for us, would you say? Christ's death defeats sin legally by paying the debt. But God didn't only do this to save us from the penalty of sin. He also freed us from the power of sin by giving us his spirit. Why? In verse 4, it tells us why. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. It's so that we can lead holy lives. The Christian life is a life that is to be lived out of gratitude for what God did for us through Jesus. We live to please our Heavenly Father by obeying Him, even at cost or inconvenience. So if you've ever wondered what it means to be a mature Christian, what is a mature Christian? Is it somebody who's memorized the whole Bible? No. Although that's helpful. If you can do that, go ahead. What it means to be a mature Christian is this. It means to be obedient to God and his commands. Christian maturity is obedience. It's, and you can ask yourself this question. Do I do, I do what he says? And do I not do what he says not to do? Well, of course we mess that up, but are we striving to do that? We, none of us can do it perfectly. But am I, am I living a life where I'm striving to do what he says and not to do what he says not to do? So have you ever wondered, what am I supposed to be doing as a Christian? Is that, is that something that I have to guess at? Is it, well, there's a lot of things that probably come to mind. I, I, I suppose I should probably be reading my Bible and you can make a list, I'm sure. Well, guess what? We don't have to guess. 
We don't have to guess what we're supposed to be doing, and we don't have to guess at how we're supposed to be doing it. Because we're going to go on in Romans to see what we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to be doing it. So last week, Jim ended with verse 5 of chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul summarizes how you change from the inside out, how you change deeply. And here's what it says, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. If you're in Christ, you've been given a new nature, the Bible tells us, and you've been given His Spirit. So you're able to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. It's not the other way around. Salvation does not come because of what we set our minds on. Your nature determines your mindset. Because you have been given His Spirit, you are able to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. What does set your mind means? Set your mind means what preoccupies you? What drives you? What are your ambitions? What do you think about? What do you put your energies into? What do you devote your time to? What do you fill your mind with? Those are the things that, mean, that, that you have your mind set on. This is all determined by who we are, whether we are in the flesh. And by the way, when, it's, when it talks about being in the flesh or the flesh, it's not talking about our skin and bones. It's primarily talking about our self-centered, inward, sinful nature, our sinful self. That's being in the flesh. So we're, this is determined by who we are, whether we are in the flesh or are now by the new birth in the spirit. So these verses we're going to look at today, verses 6 through 13, tell us what that means to set our minds on the things of the spirit and how to do that. So as is our custom, if you're able, would you stand with us and let's read this together. It'll be um, actually through verse 5 in there. For context, so um, did I? Yes, I did. So let's read this together. You read out loud with me, or if you're more comfortable just looking along, that's fine too. Let's read. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
So verse 6 says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. What does that mean, life and peace? For those whose minds are set on the spirit, in other words, those who have been saved, since that's the only way you can have your mind set on the spirit, those whose minds are set on the spirit have been made alive to God. Romans 6.11 told us, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So that means we're alert to spiritual realities and we're thirsty for God. They also have peace with God. Romans 5.1 told us, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what it means to have life and peace. What does it mean when it says that to set the mind on the flesh is death? Verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh, in other words, those who are not saved, cannot please God. And I had the thought immediately, well, what does that mean? Because I know people who are not Christians who are nice. I know people who are not Christians that are nicer than a lot of Christians, and I'm sure you do too. What does that mean that they cannot please God? Well, we have to remember that pleasing God is not about good deeds and behavior in and of themselves. We've already seen that it's impossible to keep God's law perfectly. So pleasing God is not about deeds. So here's a helpful picture that I found. It's, if you think it's clever, I didn't, I didn't write it. But here's a helpful picture. Imagine a soldier in an army. And he might be the nicest guy in the world. He's generous. He loves his family. He's kind to others. He helps his neighbors. His uniform is always pressed. And you're thinking, why is it a guy Fine, maybe it's a female soldier. Imagine it however you want. Nice, great person, good person. But then you find out that the army that he or she is a part of is in rebellion to the king. His deeds have nothing to do with it. He finds himself in the wrong army. He needs to be reconciled to the king and switch sides. To please God, you have to be reconciled to God, and that is only accomplished through the cross of Jesus. So those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, when we move on to verse 9, Paul goes to address believers directly. Verse 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. He reminds them that they are controlled not by their sinful nature, but by the Holy Spirit. This verse shows us that the mark of an authentic believer is the possession or indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. 
Therefore, conversely, if you do belong to him, you do have the spirit of Christ. Indwelling sin is the lot of all the children of Adam. Without Christ, we are all sinners. We all have indwelling sin. The privilege of the children of God is to have the indwelling spirit to fight and subdue indwelling sin. This verse also makes it clear that since it says that anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him, that means that the Holy Spirit is given to every believer at the moment of conversion. There may be other works or empowerments of the Spirit at other times and for other purposes, but all Christians are indwelt at conversion with the Holy Spirit. So when we received Christ and became righteous in God's sight, the Holy Spirit came in and made us spiritually alive. In verses 10 through 12, Paul goes on to indicate two major consequences of the Holy Spirit's indwelling of believers. The first Paul describes in terms of life in verses 10 and 11, life, and the second in terms of debt or obligation. Verse 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. What does Paul mean by the body is dead because of sin in verse 10? Who knows here that our bodies are falling apart, whether or not you're a believer. <laughs> Aches and pains and bad knees, and um, I coughed and my, threw my back out. And if, and if you're here and you have not experienced that, young people, you will. It's coming. Man. That is the result of sin entering the world. Our bodies are mortal, and the word mortal means subject to death. However, at the same time, if you're a believer, the Bible tells us your spirit is alive. For we have been made alive in Christ. Verse 10, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The righteousness is Jesus' righteousness that he imparts to you when you accept his gift of salvation. So your spirit is quickened or made alive because of his righteousness, not your own. But verse 11 promises us that our bodies will one day be resurrected. There's this tension. Our spirits are alive, our bodies are aches and pains and dying and going downhill, no matter what we do. And so there's this tension and there was, you know, there's, there's different views about that. The Greek view was that the body is bad. All fleshly things are bad. But the spirit, the soul, the inner man is good. And one day they'll be separated at death. And then that will be great. And that view is what gives rise to a lot of beliefs that about Jesus wasn't really a man when he came to the earth because he's holy and, and, and flesh is not holy, and so there's no way he had actual flesh. And especially when he was resurrected, he didn't come back in a physical body. The Bible teaches otherwise. 
the plan is, God's plan from the beginning was that we are spirit and body, and he promises us here that one day our bodies will be made new. Can I get an amen? I don't know whether I'll have hair or not, but other things will be better. Our bodies will be made new the way they were supposed to be, but now we have this tension. God designed our bodies to be an expression of our spirit. It's how we have facial expressions and hand gestures and, and the way we speak. That's the way God designed it, for our bodies to be an expression of our spirit, a vehicle for our spirit. And now, because our bodies are imperfect, it's all imperfect. But one day... When he makes us new, when when we're resurrected, it will be as he designed it. No more pain or sickness or bad backs or fill in your favorite thing there. When our spirit is made alive through the Holy Spirit, we start to get a taste of eternity. Our spirits are made right with God, but our bodies are not not yet as they will be. This creates a yearning. So because of all that, Verse 12, because of what he's done for us, we are in debt to God to live not according to the flesh, that is, our selfish, sinful desires. We are to live according to the Spirit's desires and dictates. So how do we do that? Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is where we play a part. If you're like me, you're just like, just tell me what to do. Give me a list or something. What do I need to do? I understand. I can't save myself. That was all Jesus. But am I supposed to be doing something? And what is it? Can you just tell me? So this isn't about salvation. That's done. This is about whether we will have the full God-honoring lives that are available to us here on earth as believers. Enjoying the spiritual life that the Holy Spirit gives us, life and peace. This is declaring war on sin. And we can only do this, we can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, or verse 13 there in the middle, it says, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. This is also a phrase, um, this, this putting to death the deeds of the body If you have ever read the King James Version of the Bible, and this is a term that you'll see when you read about this, the term is mortification of the flesh, which sounds like a really good uh, death metal album. But it's an actual phrase, mortification of the flesh, and it it sounds kind of ominous. So what does that mean? It means the putting to death the deeds of the flesh. So first, this isn't masochism which is taking pleasure in self-inflicted pain. And it's not asceticism, which is resenting and rejecting the fact that we have bodies and natural bodily appetites. What it is, is a clear-sighted recognition of evil as evil. Paul used strong imagery here when he used the term put to death, where it says put to death the deeds of the body. The verb that he uses, translated, normally means to kill someone, hand someone over to be killed, especially of the death sentence and its execution. 
In Galatians 5.24, which Paul also wrote, he said, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Jesus said in Mark 8.34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So how does this putting to death the deeds of the body take place? It's something that we have to do. It is not a question of dying or being put to death, but of us putting something to death. We are not passive, waiting for it to be done to us or for us. On the contrary, we are responsible for putting evil to death in our flesh. Paul does say that this is by the Spirit. Remember, this is by the power of the Spirit because only the Holy Spirit can give us the desire to do this, the determination and the discipline to do this. But it is we who must take the initiative to act. And there's, uh, there's two aspects to this. There's a negative aspect and a positive aspect of this putting to death the deeds of the flesh, both of which are necessary. So the negatively, here's the negative thing that we need to do. We must totally reject everything we know to be wrong. And not even, as Romans thirteen fourteen says, not even think about how to gratify the, des- the desires of the sinful nature. This doesn't mean to pretend that evil doesn't exist in us and, and we refuse to face it. It is the opposite. As one preacher put it, we have to, quote, pull it out, look at it, denounce it, hate it for what it is, and you, then you have really dealt with it. Or, as Jesus graphically expressed it in Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Tim Keller puts it this way. This means a Christian doesn't play games with sin. You don't aim to wean yourself off of it or say, I can keep it under control. You get as far away from it as possible. You, just, you don't just avoid things you know are sin. You avoid the things that lead to it. And even things that are doubtful. This is war. So that's the negative thing. The positive thing is that we are to set our minds on the things the Spirit desires. Colossians 3.1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And Philippians 4.8 says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So the two thoughts, putting evil to death and hungering and thirsting for what is good are counterparts. Both verbs, in verse 5, set your minds, and in verse 13, put to death, are in the present tense. They describe attitudes and activities which should be continuous, involving taking up the cross every day and setting our minds on the things of the Spirit every day. And it's very important that we do both. Both the negative aspect and the positive aspect. Both the putting to 
death, the deeds of the body, and the setting our minds on the things of the spirit. Because self-denial or just putting to death the deeds of the flesh is not sustainable by itself. Verse, and that's not even the motivation. Verse 12 tells us, So then, brothers, we are debtors. The so then is referring back to verse 11, in which Paul tells us, We have been redeemed by Christ's righteousness and will someday be totally delivered from all evil and pain in the bodily resurrection. Then Paul turns and says, So then, brothers, we are debtors. Or another translation says, Therefore, we have an obligation. Paul means that if we remember what Christ has done and will do for us, we will feel the obligations of love and gratitude to serve and know him. Paul is saying that sin can only be cut off at the root if we expose ourselves constantly to the unimaginable love of Christ for us. If we only focus on self-denial, sin can grow in the soil of self-pity and a feeling that you are owed something. You might say, I'm not getting a fair shake. I'm not getting my needs met. I've had a hard life. God owes me. People owe me. I owe me. You end up with an attitude of entitlement. But Paul says, you must remind yourself that you are a debtor. If you bathe yourself in the remembrance of the grace of God, that will loosen, weaken, and kill sin at the motivational level. So why should we do this? This putting to death, this mortification of the flesh. It sounds like an unpleasant, painful business. It runs counter to our natural tendency to self-indulgence. If we are to do it, then we need strong motives. So why? Well, one motive is, as we have seen, that we have an obligation to the indwelling spirit of life. Another, Paul tells us, is that this putting to death is the only road to life. He says, but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what does that mean? Paul is not now contradicting himself. Because he's already called eternal life a free and eternal, a free and undeserved gift. He's not now making it a reward, a reward for self-denial. So what does he mean by life? Nor by life does he seem to be referring to the life of the world to come. He seems to be alluding to the life now of God's children, who are led by his spirit and assured of his fatherly love. This rich, abundant, satisfying life, he's saying, can be enjoyed only by those who put their misdeeds to death. So is it possible to be saved and not do any of this work and just be miserable all the time because you're not putting... Yeah. I've known some unhappy Christians. None of you. Other people. This is one way in which the principle of life through death, life through death, that lies at the heart of the gospel. According to Romans 6, it is only by dying with Christ to sin, whereby the penalty of sin is paid, that we rise to new life of forgiveness and freedom. 
And according to Romans 8, where we are now, it is only by putting our evil deeds to death that we experience the full life of God's children. So we need to redefine both life and death. What the world calls life, which is a desirable self-indulgence, leads to alienation from God, which is in reality death. And the putting to death of all the perceived evil within us, which the world sees as an undesirable self-denial, is in reality the way to authentic life. It's very important that we remember in all of this that our Christianity is a relationship with God. He has put his spirit inside of us to walk with us and empower us and prompt us. If we pay attention to that relationship through prayer, asking him to give you wisdom, reading the Bible, obeying what he tells you to do, that it becomes easier to put to death the deeds of the flesh because it's by his spirit. And when we focus on that relationship, all the other becomes easier. But if we neglect our relationship with God, then it's easier for our sinful nature to more easily reassert itself. So, as I said before, if you're here today and you have not placed your faith in Jesus and accepted his free gift of salvation, that's where you need to start. Because none of this stuff is even possible without that. Because you need to receive his forgiveness and be given a new nature and begin to desire the things that he desires. But if you are a believer, um, I would encourage you to begin to think about, am I putting to death the deeds of the flesh? Are there things in my life that aren't pleasing to God? And it's sometimes inconvenient. And it's sometimes hard. And I could make a li- we could probably all make a list of things. And they'd be different for each one of us. Because there are certain things that each one of us struggles with that others don't struggle with. So I'm not going to give you a list. I won't, I won't mention Game of Thrones. Or anything like that. Did I make anybody uncomfortable there? Um, Because I don't want to do that. That's not the point is to make a list. You need to deal with this in your spirit with God in prayer and say, God, what are the things in my life? Would you please reveal to me? God, would you give me wisdom? What does the Bible say? It says, ask for wisdom and you'll get wisdom. That's a prayer that God will answer. God, show me the things in my life that are not pleasing to you. Give me the power to put those deeds to death. Give me the power and the wisdom to avoid those things. God, show me the kind of life that would be pleasing to you. And more importantly than that, God, what, what can I set my mind on that is pleasing to you? And there's some practical things. Are you reading your Bible regularly? There's a, for those of you that, that, that might find this helpful, there's a free app that I downloaded called the Version Bible. It's a great resource. Uh, many translations of the Bible in there, reading plans, devotionals. You can just open up your phone every day and it'll just give you a, you sign up for a plan and it just tells you what to read. Or we have Bibles around on these tables. If you don't have a Bible, take one home. It's, it's yours. How do you set your minds on the things of, of Christ, 
on the things of God, on the things that please the Spirit. It's definitely through reading your Bible, because that's how God has revealed himself to us. It's uh, examining the kind of things that you take in, TV shows, movies, music, books, whatever. God will reveal those things to you. But again, developing your relationship with him is what gives you the motivation to even do any of that other stuff anyway. So I would, I would encourage each of you to examine yourselves through prayer, asking God to show you how you can begin to live this life that the Bible calls this life that is truly life. Let's pray together. Dear God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you don't leave us to guess at how we should live. You don't leave us to do it on our own. You, you give us the instructions. You give us the power to do it through your spirit. You give us your word whereby we can learn about you. You communicate with us in prayer through your spirit whereby we can listen for your voice. God, you give us a new nature whereby we even desire to do any of this anyway. God, it's all your work. You just ask us to be obedient by your power. And so, God, we, that's what we want to do. We want to pursue obedience so that we can live lives that are pleasing to you and have lives that are truly life. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.